0: Let's bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord one more time to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we are blind and deaf without Your Spirit giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to comprehend. We confess our stubbornness to Your Word. So we pray, would you soften our hearts, may we receive now your word implanted, which is able to save our souls, for Jesus' sake, amen. I like the number 14, it's double seven, seven's a great number. A number that symbolizes perfection in the Bible, so I kind of like to think of 14 as double perfection. There's a family number that kept coming up for us when I was a kid. I don't know why. I can't explain it. It's a number of my dad's sales territory in North Carolina. There's my sister's high school number in basketball. It was my high school number in basketball. It's now my seven-year-old's little league number on his baseball team. It even came up In the random hotel room I stayed in when I went to Egypt earlier this year, I was staying in room 114. I mean, it just made me feel loved and known by the Lord that He would put me in that room. I also like the number 49, seven times seven. When I had four children, everyone argued for a fifth so that we could have a basketball team. Now that I have six children, everyone argues. For a seventh, based on the fact that seven is the biblical number of perfection. Stop saying that to my wife. As far as I know, no one argues that I should aim for 14 children. Grateful for that. There's a fittingness to some numbers, though, isn't there? We all understand it. Ten plagues in Egypt, complete proof of God's sovereign power over Pharaoh. Three days in the tomb, a full proof of the reality of Jesus' death. Two witnesses, corroboration of facts. This morning in Acts 1, 12-26, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 1, 12 to 12-26, we find another fitting number. And we'll see the point of that number to be the point, really, of the whole passage. Which is that Jesus restores His people for global witness to Himself among all nations. Jesus restores His people for global witness to Himself. To himself among all nations. Now, I just want to briefly defend that sentence before we dive in. So, if you will just follow along in your Bibles in Acts 1 12 to 26, I'm just going to try to justify that sentence as the point of our text. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus is the one restoring his people here in our passage. In verse 24, when the apostles need clarity on which man to appoint as another apostle, they address their prayer to you, Lord. You Lord. Well, the last time anyone was referred to as Lord was in chapter 1, verse 6, when these same apostles asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So it's most likely that here also they intend to address the risen, ascended Jesus as Lord. Jesus himself, risen and ascended to heaven, restores his people from heaven, and the restoration of his people here begins the restoration of the kingdom that Jesus taught in verse 3 during His 40 days with His disciples between His resurrection and ascension, that His apostles wondered about in verse 6, are you going to restore the kingdom now, and that Jesus mapped out in verses 7 and 8. He's going to restore it as He goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the other ends of the earth with the gospel through His apostles. So that restoration is for the global witness, as he said in verse 8, and that witness is for the inclusion of people from all the nations into his restored kingdom. So that's where we're going. Jesus restores his people for global witness to himself among all nations. So let's read the text, follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read out loud for us, Acts 1, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So we have seven aspects of this restoration of God's people for global witness to Jesus among the nations. Seven aspects of this restoration. First, the number of of the restoration, the number of the restoration. Verses 13 to 26. To understand the importance of replacing Judas, we have to understand the importance of the number 12 for Jesus himself, which we learn in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. Luke 22, 28 to 30. Jesus says to the 12, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me, A kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is a moment where Jesus assigns and delegates to the twelve a unique, unrepeatable authority over God's people. They are twelve because they judged the twelve tribes of Israel. But Luke 22.3 says, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Judas was one of those twelve. Without Judas, you have only eleven apostles to judge the twelve tribes. And this is why you observe the prominence of numerical language in our paragraph this morning in Acts 1. Let's look at our Bibles now and trace it out together in our paragraph. Look there in your Bibles in verse 13. Each name of each disciple is mentioned. You count each name of each disciple. and When you count them, there's only 11. In verse 15, the approximate number of all the disciples gathered in the upper room is 120, which is, curiously, 10 times 12. Peter says specifically of Judas in verse 17, he was numbered, arithmetic. Among us. Verse 22, it is only one of these men who must become with us, the other eleven, a witness to Jesus' resurrection. Again, in verse 24, they ask Jesus to show us which one of these two you have chosen. And the whole paragraph ends in verse 26 with a double reference to numbers in the phrase, he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I mean, the whole thing ends on the numerical note. The number is the thing for Luke. You can't restore the 12 tribes of Israel by starting with only 11 apostles. That's janky math. Doesn't add up. But it's also janky theology of the church. Jesus intends his church in the New Testament to be built on the foundation of the apostles, and the apostles themselves represent the restoration of Israel. The church is not some brand new thing, Jesus' church grows out of Israel and becomes the fulfillment of God's purposes for the people of God the church becomes the witness that Israel was supposed to be to the nations. Jesus Himself, individually, is the one true obedient people of God, the Israel, who obeyed God's law perfectly. He's the obedient Son of God that Israel failed to be. Jesus then handpicks these twelve to symbolically reconstitute the twelve tribes of Israel. And these twelve, minus Judas and now plus Matthias, will become the nucleus of the restored Israel. Which now in Acts is going to expand to include Gentile believers in Christ as well. In other words, you're part of the people of God, the true obedient people of God, if you're in Jesus and if you follow the teaching of Jesus, which is represented by the authority of the 12 apostles. And isn't it interesting that we just read the Apostles' Creed this morning? It's not written by the apostles, but it reflects their authority and theology. But this means that faithful Israelites from the Old Testament are also part of the church for which Jesus died. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the patriarchs, Moses, Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, David, Abigail. They're all part of the church. They were all looking forward to the Messiah to come, the one who would end all of the animal sacrifices by his shedding his own blood, by being the priest who would offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. There is one people of God, one living temple, with one destiny, one inheritance, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father in God, one chosen race, one royal priesthood, one holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that one people for God's own possession is the church. Singular composed of both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all made one in Christ Jesus by faith in the one true, obedient people of God, Son of God, true Israel, my firstborn. Part of what this means then is that we need to recover a vision for Catholicity with a lowercase c, a vision for the universal church, and our unity in that universal church. So that means a respect and even camaraderie with the church universal, Catholic in that sense. Not the Roman Catholic sense. We have brothers and sisters in churches all over the world that are not exactly like this church on every single point of practice or doctrine. They sing different songs, they use different instruments, they have a different understanding of baptism, They have different leadership structures. They relate to their own cultures in different ways. They may even believe different things about the second coming of Christ. But what they have in common with us is that they worship and obey the same eternal, incarnate, sinless, divine, atoning, crucified, buried, risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. They trust and obey the same God-breathed, inerrant scriptures. They share with us the same view of God's triune majesty, His independence, His authority and sovereignty as one God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They share with us our trust in and our respect for God's sovereignty as our creator, sustainer, redeemer, and king. They share our view of mankind's sinfulness and rebellion against God's authority and love, and the consequence of that rebellion as eternal conscious torment in hell because of the eternal majesty and love we sinned against. They share our view of the full divinity and full Humanity of Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man. In His sinless life, His substitutionary atoning death, His physical bodily resurrection and ascension to God's right hand as our priest-king, they share and declare the required response of repentance and faith in this Jesus for salvation from sin. And they await Jesus' return to save His people by judging His enemies and taking us to the eternal home that he's prepared for us. So, we want to express our care and concern for other churches in this one universal church represented here in acts by these 12 apostles as the restored kingdom. Even those that don't have Baptist in their name as a way of showing our love and respect for other Christians and churches around the world that are built on this same foundation of apostolic doctrine, fidelity to Jesus, obedience to Him, because we are in fellowship with them and they with us in Christ. That's why we pray for those churches in the pastoral prayer. That's why I go to train leaders in other churches around the world every so often, even though I know that they're not all Baptists. And that theology and practice of what keeps a church like ours, which is unaffiliated formally with any denomination from becoming insular critical self-righteous contracting a superiority complex being detached from god's people in other parts of the world or in other denominations or churches that would not that we would not be able to join locally because of our differences with them so we can agree on the gospel we can cooperate in the gospel and support other churches in the gospel without agreeing on all the other things we'd need to agree on in order to join the membership of those local churches or their denominations because they believe apostolic doctrine like we do. They're part of this nascent church, these 12 apostles, these representatives. They obey that doctrine and practice that kind of holy living. So, that's the number of restoration. Second, the necessity of restoration. The necessity of restoration. Twice in our passage, Peter mentions that it is necessary. It has to happen. Verse 16, Peter begins the preaching ministry of his whole life by saying that it was necessary for this scripture to be fulfilled. Or as the ESV puts it, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He treats Old Testament scripture as guiding and revealing the future of God's plan to save His people. This has to happen for Scripture to be fulfilled in order for the rest of the story of the book of Acts to be written. Judas has to be replaced. He interprets the defection of Judas through the lens of Old Testament Scripture. The reason Judas defected was that God had planned that defection as the means by which Jesus would be sent to the cross. God planned it, which is proven by Jesus, by Peter citing the Psalms as predicting it. Look at how Peter puts it. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke, divine inspiration, God breathed this, beforehand, prophetic, by the mouth of David, human agency, concerning Judas, future reference who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, divine sovereignty over human evil. Literally, the worst thing that humanity has ever done, the worst injustice that has ever occurred, the betrayal of the sinless Christ to the cross. That prediction, that plan, that scripture had to be fulfilled, and it was in Judas. So the necessity here is that Judas had to betray Jesus in order to fulfill Psalm 69, 25. Even though God in His sovereignty is not abusing or overriding the nature of Judas in doing so, He's simply using Judas's natural nature to do what came natural to Judas. And Judas did it freely. Without being externally constrained, without going against His will, He did it. That scripture had to be fulfilled. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. David wrote that psalm, Psalm 69. And because David wrote it as a righteous sufferer psalm, it's a messianic psalm. It's a righteous, royal, sufferer psalm. And therefore it's messianic. It's about Jesus and what happened to Jesus. It's written by a suffering king about the life and death of the ultimate suffering king. Now, where in the world did Peter learn to read the Old Testament like that? Well, it looks like from the risen Lord Jesus in Luke 24, 44 to 47. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. I mean, I was teaching you this th- stuff before I was ever crucified. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. That's how it has to happen, right? You know it as well as I do. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds, the disciples, to understand the scriptures. The Old Testament. And said to them, thus it is written in all the scriptures. This is what the Old Testament means that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Where's that verse? There is no verse that says that. Jesus isn't quoting verbatim chapter and verse in that sentence that He gave them about the meaning of the whole Old Testament. What He's doing is He's summarizing for them this is what the whole thing means, Genesis to Malachi. This is what is written this is what is written. This is what it means. Genesis to Malachi, that's the message. It's all about me. All of it. That's the point of the whole Old Testament according to Jesus. That's Jesus' summary of all the Old Testament writings. And when he rose from the dead, Jesus took 40 days. Man. <laughs> Can you imagine those 40 days? What a, what a conference. I mean, I'd go anywhere in the world For that conference, I'd I'd buy the plane ticket, I'd go into debt, I would go anywhere. Jesus was to listen to him talk about himself from all the scriptures and tell me how to preach him from all the scriptures. Forty days to teach his disciples how to interpret the Old Testament by using Jesus' own Christ-centered hermeneutic or method of interpretation. From that 40-day modular class... Taught by the risen Jesus, Peter learned that Psalm 69, written by the suffering king of Israel, is a messianic suffering psalm that actually predicted that Judas would betray Jesus and leave his own place among the apostles, empty. Guys, that had to happen. Because look, Psalm 69. In fact, Jesus had applied Psalm 69 verse 4 to himself In John 15, 25, when he taught his disciples, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Same psalm, Psalm 69, quoted by Jesus in John 15 to his disciples. And a while after Jesus had cleansed the temple with a whip, they had to have remembered, they did remember, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. They may have heard, that while Jesus was on the cross, those standing by offered him sour wine to drink. and They may have remembered Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So now that there are only 11 disciples because Judas defected, it's no surprise that Peter interprets Judas' betrayal as a fulfillment of the same psalm. Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Jesus had taught and fulfilled other parts of that same psalm in his life and death. The risen Christ had taught his disciples to interpret the psalms in just this way. And now Peter turns to strengthen his brothers after his fall by interpreting and applying Scripture for them starting with the very psalm he had already heard Jesus teach. He's cutting his teeth on Psalm 69 and saying, I think this is how you do it. I think this is what Jesus meant. I think I can do it with this one. But notice, Peter does it with a different verse from that same verse. Psalm that Scripture itself does not record Jesus interpreting. Jesus is not recorded as interpreting this verse in the same way Peter interprets it. He's doing it now with a different verse from the same psalm that Jesus did it with earlier in John 15. So Jesus modeled and taught the method. And now Peter uses it himself with a different verse in application, not to Jesus, but to Judas. And what Judas Judas did to Jesus. You see what Peter's doing. I want this to encourage you. Peter said, okay, I saw Jesus do it with these other ones. And now I think I'm supposed to do it with this one. And I know he didn't do it with that one. But I'm going to do it with that one because Jesus did it from the other verses in that same psalm. So I must be able to do that with the same biblical method of interpretation and still be faithful to what Jesus means and how he wants me to interpret Scripture. You see? Even Peter didn't limit it to only the ones that Jesus did it with. Peter then goes on to apply the same interpretive lens to a whole different psalm, Psalm 109.8, May his days be few. May another take his office. Peter asked the question, how does Psalm 109 now testify to Jesus? He asked that question because that's the question Jesus taught him to ask in Luke 24. All the scripture is about me. You just need to ask how so. But as soon as you ask the question, the answer becomes clear. The subtraction of Judas from the twelve at the end of Luke means that another must take his office at the beginning of Acts. Scripture, this scripture, Psalm nine eight, must be fulfilled in order for this initial restoration to be complete so that the full restoration can begin. All this is why Luke adds the parenthetical details in verse 18 to 19 about how Judas died and what his blood money bought. He acquired a field... With that money, he hung himself from the guilt of what he did. But Jews don't let corpses sway in the wind. So probably what happened was that his corpse fell and split open when his body was taken down by the Jews who didn't want to leave his corpse for the birds. So that field or farm was a field of blood in two ways. It was bought with blood money. The money that Judas got from betraying Jesus and it was in all likelihood bloody land literally from judas's guts spilling out all over it so judas's camp farm field was desolate it became a burial ground for gentiles we know from with the other gospels no one would live there just as psalm 69 said and as it was necessary for that to happen so now it is necessary for judas's empty office among the 12 to be fulfilled by someone else Now, friends, I want you to see that the relationship between Psalm 69, Psalm 109, Judas, and Acts 1 is a prophetic relationship. This is not a merely human book, this is supernatural, this is divine revelation explaining beforehand through a book written by a human what's going to happen afterward for the eventual salvation of God's chosen people. It is the revelation of God's sovereign foreknowledge guiding events, even awful events, sinful events, according to his wise, sovereign plan, for his purposes, to his glory, for the good of his church universal. The Bible is not just another book written by a bunch of religious nuts. It is the book. It is written by human men like David who were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God to write things that they could never have known or written without the Spirit of God revealing it to them. I dare say, there are some people who call themselves Christians who are more likely to believe that some religious person today has a word of knowledge about them that they could never have known about them otherwise than they are to... to believe that the scripture actually has a word for them. Scripture. Scripture is God's supernatural word for you. And it's the only one you need. And it proves itself in just these prophetic ways. Third, the prayer of restoration. The prayer of restoration. When the eleven apostles return to the upper room, what do they do? They're just kind of hanging out playing foosball. Look there in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. Now, I'm not exactly sure who all it is that is devoting themselves to prayer. Is it just the 11 with the women and Jesus' maternal brothers, or is it the whole 120 who Peter addresses as brothers? I'm not sure, but the reference to corporate prayer later in the book, and there are a lot of them, are not limited to merely the apostles and a few others. The whole church prays together corporately all the way throughout Acts. So regardless of how many people are praying here, they are praying together. They're praying together. Whether it's 20 or 120, look at the language again in verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Regardless of how many there are, corporate prayer is not just for the apostles or for the leaders of the churches or for Jesus' immediate family members. The women are also there. So even on the most conservative reading of this text, what's being modeled here is not merely leaders praying together, it's a congregation praying with their leaders. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together. Christian, does that sentence describe your life together with us in this church? Now what do we think they were praying about? Well, what they had been hearing and talking about. What had they been hearing and talking about from Jesus and with each other? The kingdom of God, the restoration of the kingdom, the outpouring of the Spirit, their global witness to Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, His return from heaven. That's what they've been hearing about. That's what they've been talking about. That's what they've been preoccupied with. Kingdom things, spirit things, witness things, global things, things relevant to Christ's return. They were united in praying these things with one accord, single-mindedly as a group. They were devoting themselves to praying these things voluntarily. They're devoting themselves. Nobody had to devote somebody else to it. They took the initiative to devote themselves to this prayer. They took responsibility to make sure they were there, willingly, without anybody pressuring them to do it, Concentrating on it, de- de- dedicating themselves to it in an ongoing, regular, continual way. And they were all together while they were doing it. No one felt exempt. No one failed to prioritize it. Regular, devoted, voluntary, willing, like minded, corporate prayer was a big deal in the early church. And look at all that God did in response to those prayers in the book of Acts. You know, you hear a lot of people today, well, we ought to get back to the church in Acts. Why aren't we experiencing more of this and that and the other? Well, look at how much they prayed together. Maybe that's why. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. That's in the Bible too. So we pray that the Lord himself would establish the work of our hands. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches apart from him, we can do nothing. That's got to mean something for our prayer life together as a local congregation. But it is very tempting for churches to depend merely on the giftedness of their leaders... Or for the 80% of the congregation to depend on the faithfulness of the 20% of those who do all the work. And then for the 80% to somehow criticize the 20% that they're not doing enough. That's not good enough. For any church. Christians pray. What's the first thing that the other Christians notice about the newly converted Apostle Paul? What's one of the first things they're told? Behold, get a load of this. He prayeth. And Christian churches pray together. Or they should. In the New Testament they do. Maybe in America they don't because, you know, football's on at noon. If we want to be a church like the church in Acts then we devote ourselves to praying together. There are churches that do not pray together. There's plenty of those. They are carnal churches. They're self-reliant churches, self-righteous churches, selfish churches, worldly churches. Sometimes they get to be big churches Because they don't encourage you to pray together. And you don't have to feel like you got to do that if you go to that church. Now, I get it. Some of us are not comfortable praying out loud. I get that. I was not always comfortable with it. That's why I didn't go to Friday night prayer meeting at my campus ministry as a freshman in college. I remember having this conversation with a guy who encouraged me to go. I was like, why do you got to pray out loud? That seems so weird. And it's kind of scary to me. And I don't get it. And I don't like that. I had to be won over to it. I had to be shown in Scripture where it was modeled and expected. But brother, sister, if you can't pray with us, if you can't pray in front of us, who in the world can you pray in front of? I mean, this is training wheels. And I get it. You hear other people pray, you don't feel like you can do it like that, so you avoid it because you don't want to feel inadequate. But friends, if we don't work on what we're not good at, we're never going to grow. I've seen many of you grow by leaps and bounds in public prayer from the pew on Sunday nights, just by listening to other people do it and then being challenged to do it yourself, you're growing. Keep it up, excel still more. We don't expect eloquence, but what we, what we do desire is faithfulness and a willingness to use the Lord's day to learn how to pray. Fourth, criteria of restoration. Criteria of restoration. To be the man who restored the 11 to their original 12, Peter said he had to be one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become, with us, a witness to his resurrection. In other words, you had to be an eyewitness to Jesus' full Public ministry from Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, which was where Jesus identified with his people in their need of repentance, until Jesus' ascension, just days prior. Now, why that criteria? Because this man had to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. He had to be able to testify that this Jesus is the Jesus he said he was meaning witnessing to Jesus' full earthly ministry and death. If you're going to be able to testify that Jesus is who he said he was, then you had to be there from the beginning of when he said it publicly, and that was his baptism. And he had to be there until he died, rose from the dead, and ascended into God's right hand to confirm as an eyewitness, yep, God testifies to this Jesus by leading him to ascend bodily into heaven and accepting him there as king of kings. In other words, this witness had to witness the historical reality and theological meaning of all Jesus taught and all he accomplished. That criteria, that qualification for being an apostolic witness demonstrates the historicity of the apostolic intentions. In other words, these apostles do not intend to preach a merely mythical or metaphorical or spiritual resurrection. You had to see it happen. If all the apostles want to do is be like, oh man, Jesus is like his way and his ethics and man, he was groovy and he makes me feel so good and, I don't even care what happened. He didn't really have to rise from the dead. That's not what they're doing. And that's not the kind of guy they're looking for to replace Judas. They're looking for an eyewitness to Jesus' whole ministry from baptism to ascension. They do not preach a merely spiritual or ethical Christ. You had to be someone who could testify to the historical reality of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, and what all of that meant for human history and for the eternal afterlife of all of those who will trust in him and all of those who refuse to trust in him. It is intellectually dishonest to try to twist the apostolic preaching into an ahistorical, spiritualized, disembodied, docetic, or merely ethical message about Jesus. That's out of bounds. You can't interpret the New Testament like that. Not and call yourself a Christian. No, no. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He proved His divinity through His miracles. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That is what he did on the cross, where he endured all God's judicial wrath for all the sin and unbelief of all those who will ever turn from their own sin and self-sufficiency and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. God then raised Jesus bodily from the dead to vindicate Jesus' sinlessness and accepted him back at the right hand of the Father at the bodily ascension to sit on the throne of God's kingdom and superintend its expansion through the apostolic preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And from there he will return to judge the living and the dead. That and no less is the Jesus to whom the apostles gave witness. And that and no less is the Jesus that every Christian and every church is conscience-bound to believe and preach. That and no less is the Jesus who can save you and me from the power and penalty of our own sins. Because only a real, historical, embodied, once dead, and now risen and ascended living Christ can save real people in real history from their real sins against a real God. A mythical, merely ethical Jesus does not cut it. And that's why the replacement of Judas had to be the kind of man that he was at the time that he was. All these first witnesses, mind you, were handpicked by Jesus himself. And because of his sovereignty over on the throne of heaven, he has preserved their witness as a trustworthy and reliable witness for us in the 21st century in the Bibles we read. Therefore, the book of Acts and the rest of Scripture is an accurate, reliable, trustworthy record of God's plan to save and Jesus' accomplishment of that salvation and the Spirit's application of it to the hearts of all those who trust him. This stuff happened. Jesus is who he said he was. He handpicked 12 eyewitnesses to testify to the historicity of it and then to write about it. And if God is this sovereign to do this kind of thing for sorry sinners like you and me, then he is sovereign enough to protect and preserve the transmission of that I witness down to you and me today. Fifth, the candidates for restoration. The candidates for restoration. Verse 23, they put forward two. Joseph called Bar Sabbath, born on the Sabbath, who was also called Justice and Matthias. It's not crystal clear who the they is who put these two forward, whether it's just the other 11 or whether it's the whole 120, but it's most likely it's all 120 of them. The reason is that Peter is talking to all 120 of them, and he's using the word us without differentiating between the 11 and the 120. And there were more than just the original 12 at Jesus' baptism. In fact, Jesus doesn't constitute the first 12 disciples as apostles until Luke 6, which was after his baptism in Luke 4. If so, then the word they, here in Acts 1, would also seem to refer to the whole 120, not just the apostles. They put these two men together forward. Some of those 120 had been with Jesus since the time he was baptized by John, but others had not, so it's probably the whole 120 who put these two men forward. It's led by Peter and the apostles, but these men are put forward by the whole congregation. These two candidates then are recognized by the congregation as fulfilling this criteria. These two guys. And yet, isn't it interesting, Luke spends all this time on Judas' replacement, only to never again mention that replacement, or the other candidate in the remainder of the whole book. Man, you got a whole paragraph on this replacement and then you never read of Matthias again. Matthias doesn't do a thing for the rest of the book. And you'd think that this Judas guy would have at least had a leg up on Matthias because he was born on the Sabbath. Not him, it's Matthias. And then you never hear boo from either one of them the whole rest of the time. Why not? Because what's important for Luke is the number of the apostles, 12. And the fact that Matthias met the criteria for reliable witness to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, you never hear of any of the other apostles except Peter and James and John through the rest of the thing. And then Paul becomes one. The end of verse 26 says it all. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. And that completes Jesus' restoration of his people to prepare them for their global witness among the nations. We got 12. Now they're ready. And make no mistake, it is Jesus himself who restores them. Sixth, the agent of restoration. The agent of restoration. Jesus is the architect and agent of this restoration. He's the one who plans it. He's the one who accomplishes it. So we mentioned at the outset, the apostles pray in verse 24, You, Lord, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place of. In this ministry, and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. You, Lord, they say, praying to, as we said, Jesus as Lord, who they had referred to as Lord in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're praying to the resurrected, ascended, enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the knower of all hearts here. He's the one who reveals to the other apostles which one he has chosen. And Jesus is the one who actually chose Matthias and not Joseph called now we don't have apostles today but this does apply to us today in that officers of the church are chosen gifts of the risen Lord Jesus Matthias is a gift to the church from the risen Christ so when we're looking for elders and deacons elders to lead deacons to serve We are not just choosing for ourselves who we like or who we think is good at their job in the world or who we will appoint to an office. Nor are we training them or hoping they will rise to the challenge once we appoint them. When we are looking for elders and deacons, we are looking to recognize as a congregation who the Lord has chosen and given to us as gifts for leading among us as elders and serving among us as deacons. We're looking for the gifts Jesus has given us in the people he has qualified for leadership and service. After all, Jesus is the one who gives every good gift to his church. Paul says, Ephesians four ten and 11, he who descended is the one also who ascended, Acts 1, far above all the heavens, That he might fill all things and he gave the apostles, including Matthias here, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The risen Lord Jesus did not simply choose the apostles and then set the church on autopilot to run itself and choose all the other officers independently of Jesus. Now Jesus graciously, generously gives each of his local churches down through history their own specific pastor teachers as well and their deacons. This is why we do not simply train, appoint, nominate, or elect elders. We do all those things, but we recognize them for who they are as Christ's gifts to his church, and we treat them as such. We don't make men elders. We recognize That they already are elders. Now, how do you recognize them as a congregation? Well, you pay attention to who is doing the work of shepherding others, who's teaching others, who's praying for others, who prays well out loud, who's watching out for others, who's protecting others. We see who is feeding God's sheep, guiding them, gathering them, guarding them, even without the office, even without the recognition. A man is an elder and acts like an elder before he is recognized as an elder or occupies the office of the elder. In fact, the whole reason that your whole ability to recognize an elder is the fact that he's already doing it without the office. He's already that kind of man. He doesn't become that kind of man because we recognize him as such. We recognize him as such because he's already that kind of man. But you're never going to recognize it if you're only here on Sunday mornings. You will never recognize it if you just come in late and leave early every Sunday. You'll never know. You'll never recognize who around you is growing because you're not developing relationships. You're not here enough. You've got to recognize. But if you want to recognize, you've got to attend. And you've got to develop relationships. You have to know and be known, love and be loved, serve and be served, teach and be taught. And that takes time, doesn't it? So if you always feel lost about what's going on in the the members' meetings every quarter... Maybe you ought to show up a little more often, and maybe you need to get to know people a little better so that you know what's going on. But that's voluntary for you. We can't make you do that. You have to devote yourself to that. Regardless, Jesus must choose the man for the office and give the man As a gift to the church, before the congregation recognizes the man as the gift he is. And that means, again, if we want more elder qualified men to help equip the congregation, then we must pray together to Jesus to ask him for them and then look to recognize who they may be. Then when Jesus gives such men to us, we recognize them by nominating them and then voting them into the office. And once in office, we appreciate them, we love and respect them, we accept and affirm them. We communicate openly with them. We make their ministry a delight and not a burden. We follow their lead, support their direction. We accept their teaching on how to be a local church together. We don't ignore them. We take and seek their counsel. And if and when those good gifts begin to act in ways that disobey their commission from Jesus, then we make sure that we have adequately witnessed their disobedience. We consider whether it's clear enough, serious enough, and outward enough to hurt the faithfulness and holiness and testimony of the church. And we do what's necessary to remove them from leadership, both for their good and for the good of the church. So if you're wondering, Pastor, are you saying that we can fire you? Yes, I'm saying you can and should fire me if I'm not preaching the gospel to you from compromising it in a way that hurts the testimony of the church. Seventh and finally, the method of restoration, the method of restoration. Notice here again, verse 23, they, the congregation, put forward two. And verse 24, they prayed. So the congregation, in consultation with the apostles, recognizes and in some sense nominates the two men who fit the bill. Then the whole congregation prays together with one mind to ask Jesus to show which one of the two he himself has chosen. Then verse 26, they roll the dice. Which was an Old Testament, old covenant, old era way of decision making. They trusted Proverbs 16:33, "The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord." That was their method. Should that be our method? Is this a decision- making model for the church today? It's curious, and I think instructive, that this is the last time in the New Testament that any Christian makes a decision by casting lots. And that makes sense, since the very next episode is the coming of the Spirit in chapter 2 to give them the mind of Christ for decision-making together. This method also makes sense for the decision that was at hand in Acts 1, which is Jesus himself appointing the very last apostle before appearing to Paul. So the apostles, again, were hand-picked by Jesus, personally appointed by him, so this method, especially before the completion of the Twelve for the leadership of the Church, makes sense for making this particular decision because Jesus is the one who has to make this decision directly, not through human agency or human wisdom. Appointing a Christ-commissioned, Christ-appointed apostle is something only the risen Christ can do. So, the very nature of the decision itself demands this kind of outwardly specific, humanly passive decision-making process or method. Now, we might prefer the outward directness and clarity of rolling the dice for all our decisions today. I mean, in one way, wouldn't that be nice? Ah, Lord, where should I go to church? Well, get out the Yahtzee box, and you'll know soon enough. But having the mind of Christ in the indwelling of the Spirit and the gathering of God's people, far better than playing Yahtzee with the future of the church. What we need for making godly decisions is not dice, but spiritual wisdom with a capital S. And we have it. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is the power to see, the inclination to choose, the best and highest goal, together with the surest means of attaining it. And that wisdom is what we use to discern what kinds of decisions will please our God and Father in heaven. Gary Friesen, F-R-I-E-S-E-N, in his book, Decision Making in the Will of God, still a classic, I think helpfully gives us the criteria of what's called spiritual expediency, What he means by that is that in decisions that don't directly involve keeping or breaking a clear command of Scripture, or when we're confronted with two equally good or permissible possibilities, what job to take, who to marry, where to go to church, we choose based on which good goal can be best accomplished by the most fitting or effective means in obedience to Scripture. There's a category in Scripture of what's called fitting, what seems best to a congregation or its leaders, discovering... What's best and most fitting is the result of wisdom at work. Guided by knowledge of God's revealed will in Scripture, seeking the counsel of other biblically wise people in the context of prayer. That's how you make decisions. So, our application from the... Now, let me just say, when you have a big decision to make, especially if you're thinking about leaving this church please don't do that without talking to an elder first. If you're thinking about moving away from the area, if you're thinking about retiring in another state or taking another job, please seek somebody else's counsel in this church. Let people into your life transitions. We want to help you. We want to love you. That doesn't always mean we're going to tell you no. I mean, there are definitely times where Churches have to just let people leave the church. That's fine. People have all sorts of good reasons for moving away or wanting to go to another church because of this, that, or the other that we may not agree with, but that may be just fine for the people who are leaving. It's all right. But when you leave, when you make those kind of big decisions without letting someone know, we think you're cutting yourself off from the very source of wisdom that you need to actually make the decision Wisdom is in the counsel of the many. You can't just come to us and say, well, we prayed a lot about it. Well, a lot of people pray about a lot of things, and a lot of the things that a lot of people pray about, they shouldn't even be praying about. There's no warrant in Scripture for you to pray about that. Maybe you're praying about the wrong thing. But how are you going to know you're praying about the wrong thing if you don't bring it to another Christian, another wise person in the church to help you understand what is it that you're even praying for? Is that good? Or maybe you just don't want to be told no. And then you've got another problem. Because now you're stubborn. Don't be like that. So our application from the method of casting lots is not to roll the dice. We're not in the same situation as they are. We're not making decisions about who should be Jesus' handpicked, authorized, apostolic representatives and we live after the outpouring of the spirit as the great experiential blessing of the new covenant not before our application then is to be wise according to scripture and according to the spirit to choose god-honoring ends and the most fitting means to accomplish those righteous ends you look at the situation you look at scripture you look at yourself you listen to the wise counsel of other christians in your local church and you say with luke in acts 15 22 at the jerusalem council no less Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose. Are you kidding me? It seemed good? That's what they had to go on? At the Council of Jerusalem? Yep, that's what I'm telling you. That's what Luke's telling you. That's what they tell each other. Again, the apostles themselves, Acts 15, 25. It has seemed good to us having come to one accord. We had a congregational meeting. We hashed it out. This is what we decided, based on Scripture and what's happening in the churches. And again, with the Apostles in Acts 15:28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's how decisions are made later in Acts, after the Spirit's already been given. And remember, again, that decision was about the Jerusalem Council and how to make sure that Jews and Gentiles could all live together in the local churches. Pretty big decision. But they didn't do it by Yahtzee. They did it by holding a congregational meeting led by their leaders praying together in the Spirit, in obedience to God's Word. Jesus restores his people for global witness to himself among the nations. So friends, take stock. How are you? How are we witnessing to this Christ? Let's pray together. Father we thank you for accepting Jesus back to your right hand we thank you that Jesus you restored your initial 12 as a restoration of your kingdom in nucleus form so that your kingdom might expand to include Jews and Gentiles slaves and free, male and female all one in Christ Jesus by faith in him as your true and only obedient Son who obeyed all of your commands and then endured all of your curses so that we, sinners though we are, might have reconciliation and peace with God. Thank you for the atonement that we find in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, find us faithful. Make us wise. Give us by your grace, more elders, more deacons as gifts to your church. May we recognize them when they arrive, when they grow, when they prove themselves ready. May we rejoice to see them lead and serve among us. And we pray. Would you expand the corporate witness and testimony of this local church and others like it to the end of the earth? Make our witness to Jesus' resurrection global. And make our teaching of Jesus' resurrection faithful to the apostolic witness that has been handed down to us in the good deposit of the gospel and of your scriptures. For Jesus' sake, amen.